Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly. We've got a great lineup for you this week. Uh, obviously, with football season starting, we're going to talk a little bit about our thoughts and feelings heading into the season opener. We're also going to chat with Neil Oustrap of the Manchester Journal Inquirer to get some of his thoughts from his time uh, catching up with the team and Randy Edsel across practice. We're also going to have a conversation with uh, former UConn Huskies women's basketball star Carla Barubi, who is now the head coach at Princeton University, her first Division I coaching job. So, uh, stacked podcast. We're really excited to bring that to you. Uh, Connolly, with, uh, with football season less than a day away, I'm mean, shocking that the the off season, a very eventful off season, has uh, come and gone again. Um, you know, we know that obviously UConn football is coming off its worst season in FBS existence. So let's start with kind of the obvious. What's you know, why do we care about, or maybe it's not so obvious, why do we care about UConn football this season? I think this is going to be a really interesting season um, just because of the nature of last season. But at the same time, it's kind of wedged in between, I guess, the new era of UConn football that's coming with the move to the Big East. It's kind of like a transition year, which is, I guess is kind of fitting because on the field, I guess we're expecting it to be a transition year. So I think it's going to be really interesting. Randy Edsel talked a lot last year about building the program the right way and playing all those young players to get them experience for when they're older. So a lot of those players are a year older. What are they going to look like? The defense was so bad last year that it was just brutally painful to watch. So is it going to be something that's slightly better than last year, but still kind of tough to watch or are, is are a lot of the players going to make enough of a jump along with the, grad transfers and juco transfers that they've brought in to make it a semi-competitive team like i feel like expectations are kind of hard and i've also reached the point in the off season where i've convinced myself maybe it won't be that bad but i, I don't know like it's it's kind of tough to tell what it's going to be like because there's just so many unknown pieces li literally everywhere on the team offense defense special teams, even the coaching staff. We've got two new coordinators who we really don't know a whole lot about. So it's a lot of new things, a lot of the same, all kind of wrapped into one thing that is kind of hard to predict. Yeah, definitely a lot of unknowns and, and no idea what to expect stylistically from the new coordinators that, that you mentioned. Um, of course, there's a new quarterback. I think that's something where if you're a UConn football fan, you want to keep your eyes on that, especially against an opponent like Wagner with a solid offensive line, allegedly, uh, and um, good running backs. You want to see UConn in this game actually have that, that kind of dominating performance that it should have against a lower-tier team, uh, the kind that we haven't seen in a while. but. I think something that'll be interesting to keep tabs on is just how the fans feel. I mean, this program has been 
I don't want to be too, too, you know, I don't want to say dog shit because, but it's been mostly dog shit uh, for eight, past eight, nine seasons. And so the, the status of a lot of people who are UConn alums, who care about the school, who care about following athletics, who liked to check out the occasional football game, they've kind of stopped doing that as of late. And with the way this Randy Edsel era, the way the Bob Diaco era ended, and then the way the Randy Edsel era got started, it really hasn't done anything to um, boost that. You know, I mean, I I think if we take take our take our brains back to that mindset of right before 2017's season opener, um, you know, we're pretty excited. Randy Edsel is back. We weren't sure what to think, but he brought in two really exciting uh, coordinators, offense, uh, you know, offensive coordinator Rhett Lashley from Auburn, defensive coordinator Billy Crocker from Villanova, uh, you know, inherits a decent roster. And then they really put up a dud against Holy Cross in that season opener, and it all went away. Um, it, it didn't – they they won, what, three games that season, two games that season? and. Three three and then they they won just one last year so i think the the key you have to start bringing some of the fans back because um it's it's been dire dire straits these past few years um they have to be they have to improve on both sides of the ball really realistically um as we've kind of discussed, like defense, obviously, when you're the worst defense ever, hopefully you can only move up. Offensively, I think it will be a challenge to be as good as they were last year, but I don't know. Maybe they have an outside shot? Yeah, I think that's the big question is what kind of player is Mike Beaudry going to be? And for as much of a question mark as the defense was last year, I still think having a new quarterback is always the most exciting part of a program. And as UConn fans, I was looking through the quarterbacks that they've had in the FBS era, especially since Dan Arlovsky. And to be even a competent quarterback has been a tall ask for a lot of years. We've been pretty lucky the past few years. Bryant Sheriffs was a pretty solid college quarterback. David Pindell really carried the team on his back last year. So, I mean, last year, let's look at last year. They scored 56 against URI. I think maybe that number would be a little much to ask for a season opener, even though it's against an FCS school. But on paper, there's no reason this shouldn't be a dominant rushing attack with at least Kevin Mensa being a thousand yard rusher. If he stays healthy, maybe have a couple other guys near there. The offense should be good by the, basis of the running backs being good but then at the same time you've got a quarterback that's only played at division two and then one wide receiver who's really had any production in college and that was also at the d2 level in ardell brown so i think it's just it's hard to tell and like you said the fcs game to start the year has actually been a pretty decent indicator of how the season's going to go you mentioned the Holy Cross game, but even look at the main game the season before Bob Diaco's last year. There was a ton of optimism heading into that season that this was going to be like a eight and four team that finally broke through 
with yeah. Bob Diaco. And then they really easily could have lost that game to Maine. And then it still started out the year well before it just all unraveled. But you do kind of get a good feel of how a season's going to go against an FCS school. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think think looking back on on those previous FCS games, I think some of the things that really stood out that I remember was we saw the offensive line. Again, I'm talking about years past, but offensive line, you know, when you can see Maine being able to make stops in the backfield and keep the running game in check and and really have a pass rush, then you're starting to go, oh, man. This this offensive line is just going to get torn apart by by FBS teams, um, and defensively, I, I thinking back last year, I remember the URI game, and just thinking, uh, you know, if if this is how it's going to be, if we're you're giving up forty nine points, if URI is not, I don't remember the exact, you know, I think they didn't have a third down in the first half or something like that. Um, you know, if, if that's going to be the case against URI, then, oh my gosh, we're going to get torched by these the rest of the, the AAC teams. So, and, and that is what happened. And, and they did. And, yeah. And, and, you know, going back a couple of years, the offensive line did get absolutely sliced up. So um, there are a lot of things. Again, if you are still to this day on, on August 28th, 2019, someone who identifies as a UConn football fan, power to you first of all but um there's a lot to keep an eye on in this opener and this season i think absolutely you know spot on is that the offense has to be able to move the ball i think we can excuse some defensive struggles lapses you know whatever it can't look like rhode island looked like last year defensively that's kind of our our bar there and then offensively you know i i do hope they i i do think they should dominate because wagner is not a particularly strong fcs team to begin with uh and that that to me that plays a role in my expectations for thursday evening as well yeah and i mean like you said about the defense it's I mean, they can improve a hundred yards, be a hundred yards better than they were last season, and still be the 129th worst defense in the country based on last year's rankings. So they can improve a lot statistically from last year and still be really bad. So I think it's it's impossible to ask the defense to suddenly turn into Alabama overnight. But if they can at least make the plays when they need to. Like I remember there are a couple games last year where it felt like UConn maybe had a shot if the defense could just get a stop or a turnover and then an 80 yard touchdown for the other team would happen like that. And it would just take all of the wind out of the sails and that would be it. That would be the game basically because you knew the defense wasn't getting another stop after that. So if it can just, be a defense that can keep the team in games and get a critical stop here and there when it needs to and just give the offense a chance because even though we've talked about that turnover in the offense it's still going to be the part of the team that carries it so 
You just got to give the offense a chance. And I think that is a completely reasonable thing to ask of the defense this year without even putting a number on it. Sure. Yeah. So you mentioned you're starting to feel some optimism for the season. Um, I, <laughs> I'm still not there yet, but, but why don't you explain yourself? Okay. So optimism is coming on a UConn football scale. I in absolutely no terms or conditions believe that they're going to even be sniffing a bowl game, but I think three goals should be a very, very realistic target because you've got Wagner. That should be an automatic win. You've got UMass. That team is significantly worse than a year ago, and UConn absolutely should have won that game last year. Even though that's on the road, I think that should be a win for UConn. Okay, so there's two wins. You need one more. ECU is not a good team. Navy, that's always kind of going to be tough with a triple option, but it's a home game. It's later in the year. Maybe you get some funky weather where it's going to be tough to hang on to the ball if they're trying to pitch it and toss it and yeet it whichever way they want to go with the option. Maybe you can get something funky there. And then, look, that could be three or four wins. I don't think that's an unrealistic expectation for them to just get to that because last year they had no chance at pretty much every single game. I think the only game in single digits that they lost was the USF game. And I don't think anyone actually thought they were going to win that game. But you go back two years to Edsel's first year and they weren't that far off from being five and seven. So it's really just going to come down to a few critical plays in a couple games where if UConn can make the plays, like going back to the 2016 season, the unnecessary roughness or taunting penalty that Herji Maiala got in the end zone that changed it from Edsel going for two to win the game to an extra point that Michael Tarbett missed and lost the game, things like that. It, I think it's going to be a couple of plays in, let's just say, four games that are going to decide what they do and – I think if UConn can come out on the right side of a couple of those, they can get to three or four wins. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the UMass game was also pretty close last year. and That's right, yeah. Uh, I think it was UMass and USF. Yeah. Um, and, you know, definitely expect the team to be better. I don't know how much it will be reflected in the win column, so that's where my, my lack of optimism uh, comes from. The only thing that really keeps me, you know, in terms of keeping an eye open for, for above, above expectations performance, which from Vegas is 2.5 wins for people who are interested in that kind of stuff, um, is just that college football is weird. Uh, lots of stuff happens. Lots of unusual wins and losses uh, happen for different teams. Um, and then just to go back to your list of kind of possible wins, I mean, Illinois is not that good. Uh, they, I think, are still better than UConn, but who knows? You know, a, a team that's been a perennial cellar dweller that um, uh, visited, visiting the rent, maybe UConn can make something happen. Only other one I would just add to your list, but um, – you know, it's a tough conference, right? Like, and it, and then the schedule is not really very forgiving. The, um, uh, the AAC West games are, um, Houston, 
and uh, include Houston and Tulane, who are you know Houston's always pretty good. Uh, Tulane is supposed to be decent this year, and uh, and then Navy, who on a little bit of a downswing, but but obviously still always a really tough team to play. So the draw is not particularly friendly, um, even if the non-conference Power Five teams, Illinois, Indiana, kind of are. Right. Like I remember when those games were scheduled and announced, it was like, oh, cool. You know, we'll be uh, (laughs) we'll be in year four or five of the Bob Diaco era. Things will be things will be humming and, uh, you know, we'll be able to get some P5 wins. Maybe we don't feel as strongly uh, in that way anymore. But, um, you know, the non-conference is not is not super challenging, but uh, the American Athletic Conference uh, very much is. And especially Cincinnati. I uh, expect it to be really good this year. UCF, as always, quite good. Those are going to be really tough games. And, I mean, hopefully they're just not demoralizing games like they were last year. So I think there's something – again, I know we are, we are grasping for optimism here, but even just, <laughs> just making gains in the margin of defeat category for some of these teams will, will show us that hopefully UConn is moving in the right direction. Right. And you mentioned progress without seeing it in the win column. And personally, I think that would be completely acceptable this year too, because look, if they win two games, but they're in a bunch more, that is completely different than winning one game and getting blown out in every single other one. So if we can see progress in this team as the year goes on and it improves and players that we're on Randy Edsel's developmental squad are playing at the end of the year and contributing well. And those sort of things are happening. I think that would be an acceptable standard too, of just a better level of play. But then I have the worst or the total defense rankings in front of me right now. And there's actually a decent amount from 2018. Sorry. A decent amount of UConn's opponents this year are in this bottom 20 or bottom 30. So 100 and worst and ECU's in there, South Florida, Houston, UMass, Illinois. Those are all, those were all really bad defenses last year. If things go well and the offense can kind of maybe pick up where it left off last year, except be a little more consistent and can maybe get into those, um, those, shootouts with other teams and the defense can then make those one or two plays that I was talking about to just grab a pick, force a fumble, just make a stop. That could be some reason for optimism too. Just start getting into shootouts and keep scoring points and just see where that goes. Well, that's uh, very not UConn, but yeah, we'll see. It's definitely not Randy Edsel's uh, preferred style, but yeah, I mean, that's going to be the thing is with this, with this team, uh, if you're trying to win games, that's uh, that's going to be the deal. You mentioned the participation chart or uh, participation team. So Randy Edsel opting not to go with a uh, formal depth chart. And um, I don't know, there's kind of a, some pretty extreme anger, some pretty extreme ambivalence or defense of it. Um, but you know, what do you make of Etzel's decision not to release a depth chart? And, you know, what do you think it means for this year? So as a writer, it sucks and I hate it because you really have no idea who's going to be 
the ones playing the most, getting the most snaps. But at the same time, I also understand it because, like he mentioned, they're going to be playing a ton of players this year. So just showing two players from each position that are going to be playing, it doesn't do a great job of giving the full picture. And here, at least, you get to see these are supposedly, I guess we'll see as the season goes on how accurate it is, but these are supposed to be the players that we're going to be seeing in the games. So I think the frustration is more there's no order in how the players are listed on the participation chart. It's just a list of names in alphabetical order. That's more the frustrating part. But at the same time, it I understand it because as much as it's Edsel wanting to show his team who's going to be playing, who's not, who needs to work to get on that team, who needs to keep that spot. It's also an advantage to him to not give Wagner or Indiana or Illinois an idea of who they need to prepare for. And those small things, if, and he's not going to be talking about injuries either. So if Odry gets hit this game and is going to miss the next game, but Randy Edsel is not going to talk about it, and it's going to be on the participation, and he's going to be on the participation squad, and Illinois starts preparing for UConn, and they spend five hours looking at Mike Beaudry film and are all ready for Beaudry, and then Steven Krajewski's out there starting, that totally throws a wrench in what they're doing, and that gives UConn a huge advantage, at least initially in the game, to exploit their unpreparedness. But... Like I said, from the media side, it sucks because you don't really know what to expect, and we're going to have to learn everything on the fly when the ball snapped on Thursday. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't super buy that it's that much of an advantage. I mean, if UConn – again, this is – we're talking about UConn-Illinois, a football game that's going to take place in, what, week week three or whatever. The stakes are not super high, um, and it doesn't really – you know, it's it's one thing if the backup is, um, you know, some some dual threat who has a different style or just someone else who's a who's a, a proven thing uh, from a you know from a football standpoint who who's a proven entity um, that, like you said, you know, if you're not prepared for, you're you're kind of behind the ball. But you know, UConn's throwing out a redshirt freshman instead of <laughs> instead of someone else. There's no, there's not much of an advantage to be had there. I, I I do see how maybe more broadly across the entire depth chart, it's just something that allows UConn uh, well prevents prevents opposing teams in their scouting process from from doing too too much. They'll just have to review participation data, um, which uh, you know, is is pretty readily available. I, I'm pretty sure those guys pay for a service that gives them that information. Um, so I I'm not sure how much of a strategic advantage it is. I understand the you know a couple of things from Randy Edsel's point of view, which is that a he does not have to do it. So why do it even if it if even if it's not some massive advantage, it could be some sort of advantage. And additionally, this roster is a lot of new people, a lot of unproven people, et cetera, et cetera. I, I really, I get that part, but I also think there's a piece of this that can motivate your team and be an internal motivation, right? Is okay. I'm second, you know, I'm second on the depth chart. I'm fifth on the depth chart. 
right? Like if you ever played sports, you would want to know where you are on the depth chart and you are always looking to move up. And, and that's kind of the piece that's missing that, um, you know, may have a demotivating effect for some players, even though, of course, there are snaps on the line that, that you care about. You still want to be listed as that, you know, wide receiver one, running back one. There's a, there's a pride that comes from that. And so um, uh, well, understanding that it's subject to change, but I think there's, there's some parts that, that, you know, Edsel is missing out on. Well, do you think there's not an internal depth chart that they're using? I mean, there has to be because the players need to know when they're going to be playing. So maybe they don't have a formal depth chart like we know written up on the wall, but I think the players know who's going to be getting the most snaps and who's going to be on the field the most and who's going to be getting the most targets. So even if it's not officially written there, there's still going to be some sort of hierarchy that the players know Mm -hmm. and that they can compete for. And it might just not be privy to our eyes. Yeah, that's, that's definitely possible. So just looking at that participation list, I know you were at availability on Sunday. Were there any surprises in terms of people included on that list or anyone new worth highlighting? Yeah, so I think the biggest uh, surprise would be at wide receiver. There's no Xavier Scott listed. He was obviously a running back last year. I think at one point he was leading the team in catches, and then he tore his ACL, missed the rest of the year. So I don't know if that's just a feature of – him still being hurt and needing to recover to get back or if he's not I guess good enough to be on the participation squad at this moment that was the number one thing that stood out to me at least um there's also no or there's no place kicker named at the moment which granted on the list of things that people are concerned about is probably (laughs) pretty low but Edsel said that it's Clay Harris and Noah Iden, the two competing. Iden's going to do kickoffs. He said Harris had the advantage on Sunday for place kicking. We'll see what happens. Harris was the only one that got um, live kicks last year. Iden did some kickoffs, but uh, in the few games that Tarbit didn't play, it was Harris kicking the ball. So other than that, I mean, it's just there aren't a ton of surprises beyond that just because there's so many players listed. So I think it's more of going to be more of something that when, when, or if we get snap counts, who's getting the most snaps is going to be more of the indicator of surprises and things like that. And then we'd be able to build our own depth chart out from that. But mm-hmm. That's also just the nature of a participation squad is there's so many names listed. I think someone said it's like over half the roster is on the participation squad. Like there's three quarterbacks listed on the participation squad. And I feel confident in saying that if Mike Beaudry's healthy and playing well, he is going to be the only quarterback that plays. Right. No, I hear you. I hear you. So wide receiver is one of those positions actually that probably has some of the most uncertainty for UConn going into this year. Um, and so I, I'd say we were all pretty surprised not to see Xavier Jones listed there after they moved him to that position. And given the personnel situation with a lot of talent either graduating or transferring out, shouts to Keon Dixon. Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. Um, rest in Eastern Kentucky, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I think the the wide receiver group will definitely be the one of the more interesting ones to keep an eye on for this season. You got Ardell Brown, the grad transfer, um, obviously someone who who it seems UConn is really counting on to be productive. But after that, it's anyone's guess, and they're all freshmen and sophomores basically. So like, whoever ends up kind of standing out from this group could be the ones who are the guys in the uh, next couple of years if uh, Randy Edsel's uh, rebuilding project actually starts to reach fruition. So, Right, yeah. Like, I mean, if you've got freshmen and sophomores in there now that are at least part of a functional offense, that means they're going to be pretty good in a couple of years in theory. And then, like, you've got Quavon Skeens on the personnel chart. I don't know – if he was hurt last year, he played in five games the year after setting the freshman record for receptions. So I don't know why he disappeared like that, but he's shown that he can be a productive player at the division one FBS level. So there's no reason that you can't have Ardell Brown on one side, Quavon Skeens in the slot, and then someone else, even Mason Donaldson had a couple of good games in 2016. So for sure, have had production. They just didn't do it last year for, whatever reason but so i guess that's a little reason to be optimistic but yeah that's one going to be one of the most interesting position groups to watch mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i, I like i like skeins a lot um and i think both him and donaldson could be maybe they just last year were kind of caught up in a pretty crowded group um again the circumstances were a lot different last year in terms of who was who that personnel was and there was actually a tight end who was a threat from the the receiving group and and then again it's not like this was some monster passing attack last year so all of those kind of probably combined to to keep those guys down but now that they're the more experienced fellows in the group uh Skeins and Donaldson they there's potential there so uh in general thinking about UConn football obviously these are these are tough and weird times we're going to be taking a lot of crap from AAC fans online who are so obsessed and good at football that they make zero dent on the national football spectrum. But anyway, UConn, uh, there are reasons for optimism. There's a, there are reasons to tune in. If you care about UConn, it's obviously an important program for the athletic department. Uh, we've got a conversation with Neil Ostrout coming up next after this ad break. So we're now joined by Neil Ostrout of the Manchester Journal Inquirer. He's one of UConn football's beat writers. Thanks for joining us, Neil. So as one of the beat writers, that means you had to sit through every single game of last season where the team went 1-11, got blown out pretty much every game. It felt like most games were over by the end of the first quarter. So why is this year going to be different? Hey, I found a lot of interest in it, I'll be honest. And and there's going to be more this year. They're, they're obviously going to be better. I mean, let's be honest. They can't be any worse. Exactly. So, you know, they, they got almost like it's nothing to lose. You know, I'm not saying, you know, they're going to use that and, you know, win 10 straight or anything like that. But I think for a lot of the players, they, you know, they know it can't get worse. They've been, you know, a little bit humili- humiliated, a little bit embarrassed, you know, worst defense in 137 years of college football. You know, I I didn't check, you know, Princeton's 1892 team. I think maybe they might have been worse. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's so bad that it can't be any worse. And it's, I think it's going to be fun. I think they're going to be better. They're going to be different on offense. Got a lot of different players, a different 
positions, different things going on. It's going to be interesting there. Defense is going to be better. We just know it. I mean, the guys who were, you know, 17 and a half years old last year are a year older, stronger, <laughs> wiser, et cetera. Uh, got, some, got some new blood in there who obviously can play. You know, they got some players. You know, it, it's going to be asking a lot for, I don't know, six wins. But, hey, if you get three, four, maybe even five, I mean, hey, that, that's a huge deal. That's a big improvement. And it's, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it'd be it'd be really important to just show some movement in the right direction. I think that's what if you're a, a hardcore fan of the program, that's what you're uh, going to keep an eye out for in 2019. I think the key to that, though, is going to be if the defense improves at all. Uh, you mm-hmm. mentioned uh, expecting it to be a little bit better this year. Uh, obviously very, very little room to go down as it is, but, um, you know, what, what gives you optimism or, or what are the reasons for optimism for uh, defensive improvement this year? Well, I mean, we've been told that they're stronger and faster. Now I don't actually see them lift weights or, or run, but you would have to expect that the guys who were around last year have gotten better, a little stronger, a little faster. I think the guys they brought in, you know, are going to play and going to play well. Diamond Harrell, I've watched him in practice. This looks pretty good. You know, the, the move of Kevon Jones down to defensive end is a good one. As, as you know, as ex- exciting young player as he was, he wasn't really a middle linebacker. I think he'll be better suited at defensive end. I think, you know, Travis Jones we know is very good. You know, 350 pounds last year, maybe 336 this year, can plug the middle. You got young guys who can play a little bit or, or who have played a little bit, I suppose. These guys are going to develop into pretty good players. And, you know, it's it's going to start this year. You know, they're not going to be the finished product, obviously. Had a very rough go of it. But, you know, they're not going to be afraid to get torched. They're not going to be afraid to make plays maybe this year. I, I, you know, it's, it's hard to go from giving up, you know, 50 points a game all the way down to 20. You know, I mean, UConn literally was not on the field seemingly for whole quarters last year on defense. I mean, you know, giving up four touchdowns in a quarter is obviously nowhere to go but up. And they've, they've, shown, they've shown signs that they're going to be better. I mean, you know, watching them in practice doesn't give you every answer, but it gives you a little bit of the clues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, when they stop the offense semi regularly, that's a good sign. You know, UConn's offense might not be gangbusters. And, you know, when they're doing that on a consistent basis, that, that gives you some hope. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about talking about last year's team, um, you know, you're probably one of a, a small handful of people to actually have sat through the entirety of, of every single game last season. Um, of the returning players, I think you mentioned a couple in, in Travis Jones. Uh, you know, especially thinking about the secondary, any guys who really stood out there to you mm-hmm. or, or who you think – just again, looking back at last season, really showed a lot of improvement over the course of that time? I mean, well, Tyler Coyle, the, the safety, he's a junior and captain now. I mean, he's obviously very talented. He's, he's extremely athletic. He's got ability to play. You know, he made a, a ton of tackles last year. Now, it's not necessarily a positive when, you know, your safety is your leading tackler. It's not the greatest thing in the world to have 100 tackles on the team like UConn last year. But he has ability. He definitely has ability it's been playing since he stepped up from campus. You know, like I said, Diamond can play. You know, junior college transfer. He's going to be okay. You know, and then young guys, 
you know, they showed signs too, despite the struggles. I mean, I think Jeremy Lucian is, is a good player. You know, O'Neill Robinson has made some plays. Keyshawn Paul looked, looked really good in a couple of practices. I, saw. I think a lot of those defensive backs um, have ability, can play, and, you know, they – I don't want to say that they were kind of thrown into the fire and, you know, they couldn't win last year, but in a lot of ways they couldn't win. Yeah. I think that's a really good point you make Neil about, um, you know, just in general, different parts of the defense fitting into the other and how an improved pass rush can help the secondary improve and, and vice versa. Um, along the, well, on the other side of the ball, uh, the Huskies are looking for someone to replace the magnificent, production and excellence of David Pindell at quarterback. The person they chose to do that is Mike Beaudry, the graduate transfer from West Florida. What can you tell us about UConn's new starting quarterback? Uh, big guy, strong guy, maybe not as slow as his 215 would indicate. Uh, you know, he's obviously not going to be David Pendell. He's not going to run for, you know, a thousand yards, but he can move a little bit. You know, he's got some mobility. He's not exactly lead-footed. So, you know, you don't have to exactly worry about him, <clears throat> you know, being, you know, dead back there and not moving around. But on the other hand, I think he can probably take a hit pretty well. You know, solidly built, pretty strong arm, pretty accurate arm. Obviously has a lot of experience. Uh, he sat out last, almost all of last year with an injury, but went to the Division II uh, title game two years ago. You know, has has – uh, put up some nice numbers, some really good numbers, actually, even if, it, you know, you call it division two, you know, there's a lot of good competition. Obviously I think he's got, he's got all the tools, you know, he's physically capable of doing the job. I think he's got a good head on his shoulders, smart guy, experienced, obviously, you know, he's won a lot of games already, you know, be it division two, that still counts, you know, and I think he's, he's going to be good. He's going to be fine. You know, the, you know, he's not going to throw for 4,000 yards maybe, but, they're going to be they're going to be more than capable on offense. I have a feeling they got some good young wide receivers. Got one very good veteran wide receiver. Obviously, good running backs, tight ends. You know, maybe a little untested, but I think good. I think Donovan Williams can play. I think Jay Rose is going to be good. So, yeah, I think I think Boulder's settling in quickly. Obviously, teammates like him. He adjusted really quickly to the environment. You know, taking him taking his offensive line off for ice cream is a good move. I mean, you know, he's. He, he, he checks all the boxes, I think. Uh, UConn lost a lot of last year's production. Uh, it was not a particularly prolific passing attack, but still mm -hmm. lost a lot, of those uh, a lot of the receiving yards from last year's team. Who do you see stepping up at, at that position, and um, who, who did you mean by the, the experienced option there? Uh, Ardell Brown. I think he's the one who's going to step up. He's the experienced guy I was talking about. He's uh, another – He's a grad transfer, played in Division II, played at Seton Hill, uh, not to be confused with Seton Hall, of course, uh, Division II out in the Pittsburgh area. Very good, fast, good hands, smart guy, um, seems to fit in well quickly. He's going to make plays. He's, 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 he's a player. He's going to – I'm not guaranteeing he's going to lead the team in receiving, but he looks like, he looks like the real deal. And um, I expect him to get plenty of attention from Baudry, plenty of attention from defenses too, for that matter. But I think he's going to be good. I think you got a lot of young guys uh, who can play. I mean, Haran also got a little bit of a taste last year, really fast, good. A lot of the young guys, Elijah Jeffries has looked good at a lot of times during camp. Cam Harrison, 
Um, who's the one in Florida? Oh, uh, Matt Drayton. Matt Drayton made a couple of great catches in practice when we were watching. I think most Ar- – Ardell is the one that's going to impress people the most, but a lot of the guys can do some things pretty well. And they've got uh, – I mean, Kayvon Skeens, Kayvon Skeens, who's been on the team for three years, didn't play hardly at all last year, but two years ago was, was very good. You know, he might get more of a chance this year too. Yeah, I, I remember Skeens coming in as a as a three star recruit from Chicago, and uh, he showed some mm-hmm. flashes early in his career, and um, definitely definitely a lot of different guys there. And um, because of the way uh, the depth chart has uh, shaken out in terms of how the team reports it, we're kind of just left guessing in terms of who who those leaders are going to be, uh, especially at a position like wide receiver. Yeah, apparently the head coach does not believe in depth charts this season. So that's uh, he's taking the Jim Harbaugh route and uh, letting us put put together our own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess uh, we'll, we'll all be monitoring snap counts and such. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey Neil, w- would you happen to know who's returning kicks and punts this year? As a matter of fact, I don't. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, w- I would guess that Ardell Brown's done it. He did it in practice uh, quite a bit, uh, punts I'm talking about. And uh, Skeens obviously has done both before. I would expect both of them to get a shot at it. Um, beyond that, I mean, I think I, I want to say Ja'Kai Gill, who was a, um, a transfer they got in, who has done a lot of good things, but – I'm not sure if he's quite in the coach's good graces these days. <laughs> um, the head coach took a few minutes to chew him out at one practice recently, but he looks like a, a pretty exciting young player. He's a Hartford kid, and he went to he went to school in the New York area. I'm trying to remember exactly where, but he transferred in. Little guy, five. I say little. I mean, average height. I should say five nine, one seventy five, which is not exactly small, but football speaking, relatively small. Speedy, shifty. He might even be getting a chance back in terms of uh, returning punts. I think he's got that ability. So, yeah, no depth chart. We're kind of guessing, but my guess would be Skeens and Brown to start, and then from there, who knows? So, uh, got the season opener coming up Thursday against a FCS school, Wagner. Not just any FCS mm-hmm. school, though. Uh, definitely not super strong, uh, unlike some of the previous. Uh, FCS teams that have visited UConn in the past, uh, I'd say you know looking back on that on that wonderful glorious history, there's the horrific scare in Randy Edsel's second debut against Holy Cross. There's a close win over Villanova. There's of course a loss to Towson. Um, mm-hmm. What what are your uh, guesses and hopes as to how this this Wagner matchup will shake out? Is it going to be something close like that, or uh, can UConn, you know, do what it's supposed to do? Well, what's what's the stat? I'll try and get it exact here, but they haven't beaten an FCS opponent by more than a touchdown since Fordham, which was 2011, I want to say. Mm. So <laughs> expecting UConn to handily beat anyone seems like it's insane, but I'm going to say they will handily beat Wagner. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that's insanity in, in itself, but no. Obviously, you know Wagner isn't you know North Dakota State. They're not Maine, but you know they got some players. Especially uh, quarterback looks decent. Um, they got a linebacker who is really good rushing the passer. You know they they may put up a fight, and 
obviously we know UConn has not been gangbusters the last couple of years. So, you know, saying that it's going to be 20 to three UConn, I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm crazy, but I have a feeling they're going to play well. And I have a feeling they're going to, they're going to sort of take care of business as FBS phones are supposed to do against FCS phones, I guess. I feel like it's kind of going to be a good test to see how much the defense has improved. Cause if they're not doing it against Wagner, they're not going to do it against anyone. So obviously the FC, FCS game is the first game. Unlike last year, where it was the third game. How do you kind of see things going from there? And do you think there's, it's going to be like a different team at the start of the year than it is at the end of the year? Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, this schedule is not exactly easy, but it's not exactly horrible at the start for UConn early as well. I mean, uh, hosting Illinois, Illinois is, I mean, it, obviously it's hard to gauge before anyone's played a single game, but bottom of the Big Ten, maybe UConn could kind of take care of business at home. Going to Indiana, not easy playing on the road. Obviously another Big Ten team. Again, the bottom of the Big Ten, though, so maybe, maybe UConn has a good shot there. I mean, you know, you're not going to win at UCF in week four. It's just not going to happen. You know, you can say all you want. They're just head and shoulders so much better. It's, it's you know, that's just almost cross it off. But I really think they might start well. It's, again, maybe I'm drinking a little too much of the Kool-Aid or I haven't watched the other teams enough, but I think they have a shot to start okay. Now, as far as the whole season, you know, let's not get crazy, but, you know, having the, the two home games to open up helps a little bit. Maybe beating Wagner, you know, getting off to a solid start in that one gives them a little bit of momentum and, you know, maybe get some on their way. It's, again, 40% chance I'm insane. So take it with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, some of the AAC is not – is is still not that strong. And then, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the Huskies can pull off some home home field magic or catch someone on a bad day or kind of that Randy Edsel special, get some, get some, uh, combination of weather, sloppy offense and, and special teams touchdowns to, to grab a win at, you know, we, we've seen it before. Um, yeah. Neil was wondering, you know, you, I, you were covering the team when Randy Edsel was head coach first time around. Um, Mm -hmm. obviously a lot has changed, uh, structurally in, uh, the world, in the world of college football, uh, especially, um, just looking at it a little bit more holistically, how is the second Randy Edsel era been, been different from the first and, and also how has it been similar? I mean, he, he likes to equate them in terms of when he got here, you know, UConn was still a Division One AA or you know what is now FCS program, and he had to build it into a 1A program, into an FBS program. And he equates it as when he got back here, it was sort of the same. It was at a level not worthy of you know FBS football, and he's trying to bring it back to that spot. Now, you can argue that it's gone down since he arrived. I mean, obviously, you know, last season was ex- exceedingly difficult for a lot of reasons, but you know, some of that. You know, you, you hate to, in, in coaching, it's a popular uh, cop-out and, you know, blame the previous guy. And, and sometimes it's true. Sometimes there's just no way around it. You're handed a, a bag of crap and you've got to deal with it. And, you know, that that's true of any, almost any job because, you know, 90 time, 90% of the time when a coach is out, a coach is fired, then, you know, you're not exactly inheriting the greatest thing. 
So there were a ton of challenges, uh, you know, when he came on the second time. But, you know, it has, we haven't really seen the signs yet that he's turning it around. Now, he says he's seen things in terms of player attitude and, you know, strength and conditioning and, you know, player attention to detail and leadership. And that's great. And that's, those are all positives. But, you know, at the end of the day, you got to win games. And we obviously haven't seen a sign of that yet. So, I mean, it, it had, and, you know, there's the fiasco with, uh, you know, hiring Corey and, you know, the, the state ethics board, which I think was a, a largely a waste of time by the state. But hey, whatever, you know. You know, so there, there hasn't been a lot of positive uh, results from him yet. So it, it, has, it obviously hasn't been a success yet. Yeah, it did seem that when he took over, he really went with the full-on rebuild approach. And, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think uh, football is especially the sport where, where we can kind of see the least. And there's, um, you know, so much to be seen with all the so – just the num- sheer number of players on the roster and people you manage and things that go on mm-hmm. behind the scenes. But – I don't know. I, I personally thought he didn't re- he did not inherit a particularly bad roster. He had Brian Sheriff, mm-hmm. you know, pretty good quarterback. He had a solid line. If you look at the defenders on that roster, you know, those guys were, you know, there were players. There was Luke Carazola, Junior Joseph, Foley Fatukasi, Jamar Summer, Obi Mel Um, mm-hmm. you know, so there's there were there were some players there. I understand you kind of need to to read when you when you take over a new job and and I guess what I'm saying is Randy Etzel obviously had a very large leash taking this job under the circumstances and, and, and what we right. understand to be at a discount. But, um, you know, how, how much time does Randy Etzel realistically have, though, to begin to start to show results? Because if you're a fan of this football team, you've been watching a lot of, a lot of crap for a lot of years. Yeah, it's a fine line. It's like, you know, normally if you don't show signs after three years, you know, alumni fans whatever start to get antsy and you know start about thinking about changes again which is terrible but that's the kind of the culture we live in but i think randy has a much longer leash for a lot of reasons one because i think the administration sort of knew what they were the kind of position they were putting him in what they were kind of asking him to do was almost impossible uh and i think the other reason is both sides know that and you mentioned it that he's doing it at quite a discount that the, the salary he's being paid is maybe half of what UConn might have to pay someone else if they replaced him. And, you know, you hate to say it all comes down to that. It certainly doesn't, but that's a factor. And that, you know, if they make another coaching change, which would be, you know, I think it, it, it seems realistic to have so many to not give anybody more than, you know, four years, three or four years, like, you know, you go from Pasqualoni to Diaco to Randy to someone else. It just it just seems like at some point you got to give somebody a chance to go a few years. And because of the situation, I think Randy's got that chance. It's UConn is not going to go out and get Nick Saban. You know, obviously they're not going to go out and get the hot young head coaching prospect anymore. It's just it's just unrealistic to think about. Now, can they get someone different than Randy Edsel? Sure. Can they get someone better than Randy Edsel? Eh. I mean, maybe. But for the price they're paying and what they're getting, I think it's just a situation where he's got, you know, not not as long as he wants on the job, but he's got he's got a little ways to go. He's got time to see if he can turn it around. And I think the, the university, you know, be it David Benedict, be it the new president, are going to give him a little time to see if he can't do it. 
Now, if there are no signs this year that there's improvement, well, then you know, then the proverbial hot seat comes along. But if there's if there are if there are signs that UConn is actually going to be competitive and going to turn around, then yeah, then I think I think Randy's kind of got sort of as much time as he wants. Yeah, I, de- I mean, I definitely it's it's become very clear, um, you know, how long of a leash he has, and then I think the conference move probably bought him a little bit more time, even if it has been, um, even if it does end up kind of being a net positive in, in the recruiting standpoint, it's, uh, I guess just an right. uncertainty that people can kind of throw at you. But, um, you know, and I know we, we kind of said we wanted to talk mostly about the football, but can't, can't ignore the conference situation and the fact that of course this is UConn's last year in the American. Um, uh, and, Independence leaves UConn in a in a pretty interesting space in the college football landscape. Um, you know, my question for you is, what do you think UConn is is holding on to by staying as a member of FBS uh, in this situation? I think it's a fight. In a in a big picture, it's a financial investment that the state and the university has made that I don't that is going to be exceedingly difficult to go back on. I think if you, if you tell the, the legislature that, yeah, we spent $91 million to build a stadium in East Hartford and we're going to play FCS football, you know, I, I don't think that goes over well. I think if you say we spent, you know, I think the price tag was $58 million for the facilities on campus and, oh, by the way, we're not playing FBS football anymore. We're going to go back to the – the old Yankee conference, you know, to the, to the CAA and do it that way. I think that's just a really bitter pill to swallow for everyone involved. Now, is it impossible? No, I suppose you could do that, but that's a, that's a really big egg you lay. That's a really big number dollar to kind of eat and say, look, we messed up and yeah, forget all that stuff. I, I just, I just think that's very difficult to do. Now, you know, do you think you can turn it into some sort of uh, I mean, one of the top programs in FCS, you know, North Dakota, Eastern Washington, North Dakota State, rather, uh, and, you know, make it some sort of spectacle and, you know, really sell tickets and be the best in that and still make it work? That's awful tough. I, I, I don't see that as as really possible. You know, you really got to be in a, either a football hotbed or have some sort of crazy tradition that gets people out. It's it's tough to go backwards. I mean, I know a few have done it. A few have, a few have dropped programs, obviously, but a few have, have, uh, you know, gone back to one double a FCS, whatever. It's, it's a really tough pill to swallow though, given the, given the outlay of money. Now, you know, if you're an independent and you can't make it work and you're just kind of spinning the wheels and it goes for a few more years after this. Yeah. Maybe you have to look at that. Maybe you do it. Maybe you, Maybe you go backwards. I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think UConn's even considering that yet. I don't think it's realistic yet. But mm-hmm. I suppose at some point, it's 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 got to be consideration. You, uh, I believe, you were one of the people who said that. Um, you know, kind of speaking to folks within the program, it sounds like um, they're going to be able to put together a pretty solid schedule. Um, can you just speak a little bit more to that in terms of, you know, what that might mean in terms uh, you know, replacing ECU yeah. Tulsa with, with who? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's a tough situation. I think everyone looks at like, what they call guarantee games. Everybody looks at, you know, UMass goes to Old Miss a few years ago and, and, you know, play them tough. Or, you know, you have, you know, you're going to play Clemson in a couple of years and get, you know, 1.2 million. And you're going to play Tennessee and get millions of dollars. Those are great and all, but obviously that's not getting you a home game. And obviously, in the long run, you're gonna get your you get your butt kicked most of the time. You can't really make a make a living, so to speak, on that forever. You'd be the the old Coppin State of basketball, you know, <laughs> team that used to play, you know, ten top twenty five teams in November and December. You know, that doesn't exactly help them sell tickets at home. It just funds the athletic department. Yeah. So in the long run, you can't do that. But I think there's a little more room from your kind of mid level but still, you know, power who don't want to pay, you know, $1.3 million to their non-conference opponents and bring them in every year. Like, this is not the fiscally possible for them either. So I think, I know this is horrible to say in this era of conference realignment, but I think regionalism still matters a little bit. And when everybody's trying to save a nickel, it's not the craziest idea to play someone who's in the drivable distance of your university. So despite bad blood, despite, you know, all this stuff, I, I think the, the Syracuse's, the BC's, the Rutgers, you know, the Temple's, maybe even the Pittsburgh's of the world are, are the target for UConn. And, and a lot of those I think are possible. And I think that's a, those aren't exactly huge names, but those are names that at least UConn fans recognize that they have history with you be it in football or be it in other sports. And I think it's, it's possible on a rotating basis to get a, enough of those to come to Rancher Field where it makes it feasible to do independence. Now, is it going to be a rousing success? I don't know, you know, but I think you can put together a decent home schedule. And, you know, with, the, with Notre Dame's kind of weird situation with the ACC and the unbalanced schedule in the ACC, you know, some of those teams need games. They need games. And, you know, going to play in East Hartford is not the worst thing if you're an opponent, if you're a sort of a name opponent. Maybe, I mean, not a, not a top 10 team, but let's say a borderline top 25 team or maybe just outside the cusp of, you know, your superpowers. You know, it's not a bad trip. You, know, you can fly into Bradley, you can stay at the airport, you can stay close. You know, dr- frankly, this is one of the positives of having the, the stadium off campus. If, if, if you're a team and you got to go to stores for a football game, you know, that's a big ask. But going East Hartford, eh, it's not that bad. Yeah. And frankly, it's a place you can win. So if, if, if you want a road win, you know, UConn almost, almost gets credit for being not world beaters recently. So, I mean, I think it's tough. It's going to be tough to schedule. It's not going to be easy. You know, you're going to play a home and home with UMass every year. Are you going to, you know, are you going to play? Liberty and, you know, beg BYU to come. It, it, you know, it's kind of tough, but I think it can be done. And from the people I've talked to, you know, they're getting some reasonable requests. They're getting some, they're getting talks and meetings with people who, you know, might make a bit of a difference to fans. Yeah. You know, you're not going to get, you're not going to get Michigan, Michigan to come back. Probably. You're not going to get Notre Dame in a series again, probably, but you know, you're going to get somebody that moves the needle a little bit and that's, that's what they have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, as even 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 good teams in the American sometimes did move the needle. I mean, Houston a couple of years ago, even when UConn beat them, you know, I, I don't know how crazy fans were. Yeah. You know, that was a really good win. I don't know how Diaco and the team did it, but hey, <laughs> you know, it was a really good win. 
But yeah. it, I don't know if it really moved the needle with fans. And even this year, if you somehow beat USF, uh, you know, they play them in late September. I, I just don't know, even though it's been, you know, almost a decade, it still doesn't quite, you know, grab fans' attention. Whereas I think if you beat a middling BC team, that would. Right. And it's, you know, it's horrible to say, and it's regionalism, and it's, you know, it's old school and all that stuff, but it, it, it does move the needle a little more. No, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's um, that's been the strike on the AAC is that, you know, especially for football, the quality of the teams has been perfectly good for, for where UConn is or was six years ago. But uh, just the yep. fact of the matter is the fans don't care as much about about beating those teams. Um, yeah, it'll be super yep. interesting to just see how their life as an independent goes. I mean, I think it's just been such a wild ride for UConn football <laughs> um, to not even, I think something that is worth mentioning when we talk about potentially moving back to FCS is just the fact that UConn was not very good as a, uh, was not some sort of FP, FCS or one double a superpower before, before even moving up. It was having the friends with money in the big East who, who wanted them to move mm-hmm. up that, that made it possible. So um mm-hmm. Independence will be another unique step on that journey, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. I'm uh, going to put you on the spot for, for just two final questions here as we, as we close mm-hmm. things out. First, do you have a record prediction for the football team this year? You know, I, I, I've said – I think, I've, I, think I've, I made the joke that, you know, they're going to they're gonna double their, uh, their win output, and that's going to be a huge celebration – but no, I, I think there is the potential for, you know, hold your breath, four. And that's, and that's, that's the high end. <laughs> I know that's terrible to say that that's the high end. But I, I think they, they have a chance in a few of these that, you know, to, to, say, to say anything more, I'm sorry, is, is, is just crazy. But I think, and maybe four is even crazy. But I, I think they got a good shot to, to be significantly better. And, you know, it's, it's horrible to say the four win season is significantly better, but Hey, yeah. we are, this is where we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I think a four win season uh, would be incredible. And uh, mm-hmm. like it, like we were discussing sign of progress. And uh, I can also yep. see the situation where, you know, UConn beats Wagner by two touchdowns and we really talk ourselves into uh, something good happening against uh, Illinois. So of course, college yeah, hey. is weird and anything can happen. Absolutely. Okay, final question. Switching gears only slightly. Well, switching gears mm-hmm. quite, a, quite a bit, actually. Um, we'll talk about the, just quickly. I know you cover the men's basketball team as well for the Huskies. Um, really interesting year coming up for them. I know we're, we're still about two months from the start of that season, but what's your, what's your quick outlook take on, on how things are shaping up for that team as we approach the start of – Dan Hurley's second season. Yeah, I mean, good recruiting class from what I've seen and heard. I've seen uh, seen all the guys play pickup a little bit. I've, I've only seen a couple of them play live in real games, but you know, good signs. Um, I think you know, it's. I know. I think I said this at the beginning of last year. They might have been a borderline NCAA team, and obviously, I was incorrect, and maybe had a little, little too much of the Kool Aid on that end too, but. I think I think you know with the the way the league is shaping up and the way their non-conference is shaping up. I I think 
they have a reasonable shot to make the tournament. I think, uh, you know, you, you lose a, a guy like Jalen Adams and, you know, you say, well, how do you replace them? But, you know, they have a pretty good backcourt. They have, they have, they have some guards you can play. I, I think, you know, and, you know, obviously Josh Carlton came on at the end of last year, you know, they're going to, they're going to be faster. I think they're going to be maybe better defensively. Well, they have to be better defensively, obviously. But, you know, I, I think 20 wins is not ridiculous. I think they can make a pretty big stride this year. You know, maybe that's asking a lot. I'm, I'm not I'm not quite sure on, you know, how the league shapes out exactly. I, I think that, you know, still the top of the league is going to be a little bit out of reach. But they can they can play with almost anybody in the league now. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they make a little run. Maybe maybe rekindle some of the magic. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think what was promising about last year was just that Hurley seemed to have the team playing real real high-functioning basketball, um, which which was new. But, yeah, I mean, it just seems like expectations are, are, are all over the place for, for how to think about this year's team with all the kind of X factors and, and then losing Jalen Adams but getting in some new pieces. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything up to be a super interesting scholastic year for for football and men's basketball for sure absolutely it's always fun yeah all right that was a fun conversation with neil we thank him for joining us uh now howard megdal is going to be interviewing carla barubi who is now the head coach at princeton she played for gino ariema graduating in 1997 uh she was previously head coach at Tufts where she took that team to the final four a handful of times. We had a great conversation with her about the arc of the women's game, her time at UConn, what led her into coaching and much, much more. We'll hope you enjoy. All right. So Carla, I want to start with just the origins of basketball for you. And I'm wondering what your earliest memory of basketball was. (laughs) Uh, I guess I just go back to, to just watching basketball on TV. Um, I come from, a uh, a, a family that just loves sports, all sports, mostly Boston sports. Um, so we were huge Celtics fans, um, remembering the, you know, the eighties and, and watching Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish and, um, and kind of fell in love just watching the game on um, on TV, and then you know from there, um, my my dad uh, we had a small driveway uh, in our um, in our yard, and he put a a basketball hoop up on a, a tree. Um, so we had a a hoop in the driveway, a small little area, and um, yeah, kind of just fell in love with with playing. Um, so I just loved watching it and loved playing out in the driveway. And, and from there, um, it, luckily I had a, a neighborhood full of, of kids, um, mostly boys that were my age, um, or a little bit older that loved basketball too. And so we would play all the time. Um, and one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three games, really competitive. Uh, it was great. And then I also, um, would play with my brother, older brother. Um, 
he didn't play competitively, but we played in, in the town league together and we'd also play uh, outside uh, in the driveway and begged my dad to put up a, a spotlight too, so that I could play at night. Um, didn't, didn't want to get off the court. So those are some of the, the early memories of, of basketball. Spotlight is a game changer. I know that well. I, it's interesting to me because we're, we're rough contemporaries, and, and the, the idea is that this is the last generation that didn't have professional women's basketball as a touchstone. Mm-hmm. And right. so I guess I wonder for you, as you came of age as a player and became the remarkably successful uh, player that you were in high school and college, what did you see as your future in the sport? Uh, you know, you obviously went on to play in the ABL for, for a few years, but that pathway, I remember talking to Rebecca Lobo about this, where when she was an undergraduate, the idea of continuing in basketball wasn't even necessarily something on her radar just because there wasn't that pathway. And I'm wondering what it was for you. Yeah, nothing. It was not on my pathway either. Hmm. I, I wasn't looking to the future. Um, my My immediate future was, you know, back then was high school and then, you know, you know, definitely wanted to, to play in college and then figured that was, that was it. And you heard of, of people going overseas to play a little bit, but um, not, I wasn't really thinking, you know, of, of that extended um, future in basketball. So what was your idea? So senior year at UConn and you're looking around, what are you thinking your future career path is going to be? Yeah, well, by my senior year, the ABL had been around for one season. So the first year of the ABL was during my senior year. Mm-hmm. And then um, during that year as well, you hear about the, the formation of the, of the WNBA. And so I had, I had the, the choice of what, uh, of what um, league I wanted to sort of try out for or, or you know, which one I wanted to uh, be on the draft board for and, um, chose the ABL at that time because it was a regular traditional basketball season. The salaries were a lot better and, um, it just made, made sense at that, at that time. Um, so during, you know, during the end of my college years, that's when I knew that it, it could be a, it could be a possibility, but, but prior to that, even early in, you know, my years at UConn, I definitely was not thinking professional basketball. So what are you thinking? Take me through your initial conversations and initial memories with Gino Oriyama and how he sold UConn to you and how UConn uh, played a role in your own thinking uh, about your career path. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I, I distinctly dis, just despised being on the phone with college coaches because <laughs> I was just really shy and, you know, didn't, didn't know what to talk about and just didn't, didn't like the whole process. Um, but I remember being on the phone with, with coach and it was really easy um, and fun. And, um, you know, I had been to games at UConn prior cause my, my mom is an alum. And so we went to games. So, you know, I had already sort of an affinity for, for UConn, um, but just talking to him on the phone, you know, really enjoyed it. Um, he came to, you know, a couple games, um, you know, I think 
kind of early in my AAU club um, career, um, but then came to the high school game during my, my junior year of high school. Um, I remember it because I had just come off a, a fibula fracture um, in my leg and it was my first game back and I know I played horribly and and I think I hear you know years later that he went back to CD and said she's way out of shape why are we even <laughs> recruiting her and um, and she said you know you know give her a little break she just came off a a, a broken leg so um, yeah I mean I think you know he just was able to he just made me feel comfortable. He just sold me on. He was, you know, building something special there. Um, or ben just um, probably at that point either committed or signed and was going to start her, her freshman year or maybe finish her freshman year. And um, great things were on the rise. They had been to the to the Final Four in, in 91, and, um, you know, I'd followed that. So, um yeah, I enjoyed talking to him. I enjoyed talking to, to, to CD. They came into my home uh, for a home visit and, um, yeah, just, just bought into it. And, you know, it, it was nice that, you know, I didn't feel like I had to, needed to, you know, go to college near, um, where I was from. Um, you know, I grew up just an hour away. Mm-hmm. My brother at the time was at, at Stanford. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, as a family where like you needed to, you know, stay close to home, but it would, you know, I felt like it would be nice to have my, my parents and you know, my four grandparents be able to, to come and watch games and, um, and went on my visit, met the players and just felt at home, um, you know, just felt like a really, um, just a really great, um, you know, place that I could spend my four years. What's interesting to me is the extent to which UConn women's basketball has become that touchstone the way the Celtics you talked about were growing up for mm-hmm. for our generation, right? And right. I guess I wonder at the time, while you're there, did you feel it becoming that? Was there any inkling that here we are a couple of decades on that UConn women's basketball was to become this? <laughs> no. I mean, no, 11 national championships later, no, I didn't know that was going to happen. Um, but, you know, during that 95 season, um, I'm a sophomore, you knew that that great things were going to happen. You know, from from my year on, you know, you felt like he was recruiting the best. He ended up recruiting the best players in the mm-hmm. country. Um, you know, when he started off, it was the best players in New England or the best players – sort of the Eastern seaboard. And then he's, he's getting those players from, from all over the country. So good things were happening. And, um, you know, the fans just, I mean, you gamble became this, this amazing place to, to watch a basketball game and, you know, players, prospective student athletes are seeing that. And, and now, you know, we're on ESPN and we're, you know, in the national championship game and, and so it's building and building and everyone talks about ESPN being right in Connecticut and what a um, added advantage that was. And um, you knew think something great was happening, but did you know 11 national championships? No, I certainly could not have <laughs> scripted that, but, and neither I'm sure could, could coach, but 
um, but that you knew um, that the the program was was on the rise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, during my time, we only won one. I say that, and it sounds funny, but you know, <laughs> others won four during their time, like like Stewie. But um, that I feel very you know fortunate to have been part of that that first one, and you know, in the the two years after you know, final four and a final eight, you know, we're right there every single year. Um, so, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was the start of something really, really great. And I think it's interesting because you talked about you recruit the best players in, in this region and then it would expand outward. And so I wonder whether you take lessons that you saw and even experience being recruited by Gino, by CD, uh, and used it, uh, at Tufts, obviously it's a different, uh, animal altogether, uh, in the same way the Princeton is, which we'll get into in, in, in a little bit. But are there lessons you take forward? Are there things that you try and channel from that uh, experience when you're on the other side of it? Sure. I mean, I think that that the the lessons I learned um, at UConn just kind of like you know form my 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 foundation helped me um to figure out you know just who I was as a person and and it got me out of my my shell my very shy shell that I was in and um you know I I loved the game of basketball but then I really at UConn really enjoyed just the X's and O's of basketball too and and um you know we had another coach on the floor with me at all times with with Jen Rosati who I felt like I I learned a lot from as well, and um, and Jamel Elliott too. It's funny that you know my two captains that were just a year older than me became you know really great coaches, and um, and yeah, I mean the 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 experience of of being recruited, um, you know, highly recruited helps me in in recruiting and how you know how to talk to to players and AAU coaches and high school coaches and. Um, you know, all, all of that. I mean, a, a huge part of of who I am um, as a as a coach and as a leader came from, you know, came from my experience at at UConn. And you know, I learned, you know, how to, you know, what it takes to be successful as a as a as a, pl- a player and and as a leader and um, you know, on the court, off the court, and um, you know, it, it definitely was an incredible experience and, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today with, without that, um, that UConn experience. Do you feel as if you led Tufts, uh, obviously to a final four in 2016, that happens to be the last time that UConn won the national title. Do you see the two as related? And do you think that having you as part of the final four experience, uh, is a vital part of UConn getting back on top overall as a program? <laughs> Can you repeat that? Did my time at my when, my when, final four at yes, Tufts have anything to do? Yes, you 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 led Tufts to the final four the same year that that Stewie won her fourth of four. Uh, uh-huh. um, whether you think that it's important that you are part of the final four, uh, let's say with Princeton, <laughs> in order for uh, UConn to return to the top. <laughs> I don't think that has anything to do with with the other. Uh, <laughs> it's not related. No, I do. I will say that you know we. At Tufts, we went to, to four Final Fours, but the most amazing Final Four and national championship game we were in was the one that UConn was was there um, in Indianapolis and ended up winning it. And um, but it was 
it was amazing because the, the UConn team was at our game. Um, the UConn pep, pep band was at our game um, playing our, our fight song from Tufts. Um, it was, you know, I wouldn't have had that experience at, you know, at the, at the national championship game um, without the, the, the great people at, at UConn. And, and um, you know, we didn't end up winning that, that game, but, you know, it will be a, a memory that will last for forever for, for my players and, and the alums and um, myself. It was, it was amazing. Um, I mean, I hope that Princeton uh, in Princeton and UConn gets the final four. That would be, <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, we'll, you know, hope that that happens um, down the road. Well, I mean, even just, and to that end, the uh, having covered that final four as well, Having D2, D3 along with D1 seems to me like such a winner of an idea. Are you hopeful that the NCAA returns to that? And any reason you could see why you wouldn't have that be the way it's run every single year? Yeah, they are planning on it. I think it's in um, 2023. Yeah, yeah. 23 maybe. But why it's not every year doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Speak to this better than I could. I, I agree. They're... I don't know the reasons behind it probably money. It, co- it could cost a lot more to send that many teams. And um, it was, it was an unbelievable experience and I would wish it for every, you know, division three and division two teams to be able to experience that, that D one experience. Cause it is, you know, it is, it is different. It's an, it's another level. And, and, you know, it opens the eyes, eyes to, to fans across the country and, and those that are, um, you know, at that final four, how great the, the basketball is, you know, at division three and division two. And, um, you know, it, you know, it was amazing. We had over 6,000 fans at that, at that game. And I think if it happened more often, I think even more people would be going to those games, um, to watch great basketball in between, you know, the days of the final four and, and championship game of division one, it's the, it's a perfect setup. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And as a, a D3 product myself, I'm eager to see it happen. I'm, yeah. I'm curious when the Princeton job opportunity first opened up, a lot of people, and, and maybe, maybe this is too easy, um, a comparison that people make because UConn is the template for a lot of what's happened over the past couple of decades in women's basketball. But there are parallels to Princeton being the UConn of the Ivy League in terms of players they've sent on to the pros, in terms of the amount of championship uh, pedigree that comes with being a Princeton. And I wonder whether you see those parallels, number one, in the recent history, and number two, whether that played a part in convincing you to want to make this jump at this time. Yeah, I knew, you know, I, I said this, that it had to be something really special for me to leave Tufts. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I've, I followed, I follow the Ivy league. I've followed Princeton and know, have known just what kind of success they've, they've had. And, you know, it's the, you know, it's the power of Princeton. This place is, is incredible. The, the, the degree, the, the alumni support, um, you know, and they're, they're really successful across the board in, in many, many sports here um, because of just what a great, school this is. So I knew I wanted to go to a, if I was going to leave Tufts, it would be for a place that, you know, that has a history of, of winning um, and has a blueprint on, on how to win. And, um, and so when I, 
you know, talked with the, the athletic director here um, and, and came on campus. I just, I fell in love with the place and knew, you know, I'd love to, to, you know, take, you know, take on this next, you know, chapter of my, of my career um, here at, at Princeton. And, you know, things fell, um, you know, into, into place and, um, you know, Coach Ariama helped me and, and with the whole process and, um, and it was, it, it's been a, a great transition and, and you're right. This is, you know, a place you can win. Um, you know, I want to keep building on the, the success that they've, you know, the, the Tigers have had here and, um, you know, but, but I'm, I'm building in it my, my own way and how I know how to do it. And, um, you know, I think that we can get just tremendous students here, but, but athletes as well that want you know, want this incredible education that that will, you know, set them set them up for for life. I'm curious to that end because obviously to have a mentor uh, like Gina Oriema is something significant. But also, you've created your own path in so many of these ways. I'm wondering what's the single best piece of advice you plan to incorporate from him, and what's the <laughs> single best thing you plan to do on your own. That is your own initiative. Oof. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, there's so many things I've I've learned from 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 Gino, and um, you know, I, as a as a player, and how um, I think how focused you need to be, and how how hard um, you need to play. You know, as and as a coach you know, he was always dialed in. He knew exactly what we were doing in practice. You know, you knew when you looked at his eyes and in a game um, that we were going to be okay. Cause um, you know, he, yeah, he was, he was always prepared, always ready. And, you know, I want my players to always be that way and always feel that way. Um, I want them to, to strive to, to be, you know, excellent on the court every single day. Um, the same thing in the in the classroom, um, and so everything is as at a at a really high level. Um, you know, there's a, a strong drive that that these student athletes have here, and um, you know, I need to be at that that same level as well. Um, and I I know that I I learned that at at UConn. It wasn't a a piece of advice that he's giving me, but he's you know he teaches you know, his, his players throughout the years, I'm sure that, you know, how you have to, how you have to perform day in and day out. Um, and, and, and to that end, the, those players who you played with, you know, whether it's, whether it's Jen Rosati, whether it's Rebecca Lobo, there's obviously a legacy and a generation unto yourselves uh, that have created so many memories uh, throughout the diaspora of women's basketball. I wonder how, how closely you're in contact with them and how much you rely even beyond a question of CD and Gino, but to that generation of UConn player uh, for yeah. uh, conversation advice and uh, coordination uh, in the work you're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I was just texting with, with Jen Razzotti a couple days ago, talking about a, a foreign trip that, that her team had, had gone on. And so, you know, we're, we're in contact, um, you know, Rebecca Lobo as well. I mean, Kara Walters, someone that I, I talked to. Um, uh, <laughs> one of my best friends is, is Colleen Healy, um, who was a couple years older than I was, but also a really good 
friend and she's involved in a lot of great things with with basketball now too um running some some camps um so yeah i mean these are my my best best friends you know sometimes it's talking uh with you know ha you know just asking questions and and helping with advice and then i think most of the time it's more you know just you know going over and and, and talking about the the memories that we have and um and you know they'll they'll be some of my best friends for forever um you know with gino it's more of like he he helped me out a lot with usa basketball getting prepared to be the the head coach of the under 16 and under 17 national team um mm -hmm. so i talked to him a lot about that and then you know when jobs have come up in the past you know i've always you know gone to him for any advice and um when i asked him about princeton he right away he said that's it that's the one i'm you know i'm putting a call into the to the ad right away so um you know i think even the the players that that i didn't play with um at uconn it's still you know we'll help each other out in any way we we can it's really you know you, you've probably heard this it's it's really is a a big family and we've had we have each other's backs and we'll always you know bleed blue and um you know, and so much of of who I am came from my my years there. Um, you know, both you know as a student and as a as a basketball player. And what's interesting to me, in part with what you have here in 2019-2020 at Princeton, is a very UConn kind of thing to figure out, which is that you're returning, obviously, in Bella Allery, somebody who is not just two-time defending Ivy Player of the Year, but somebody who uh, WNBA scouts believe uh, will be a potential top five pick in the upcoming draft. And so that's got to be part of your thinking, I would imagine, where it's not just about figuring out how to win at Princeton here in year one, but also how to make sure that Bella is ready for the WNBA. That is a time of balancing act that uh, some coaches uh, have some difficulty with. And I'm wondering for you how you think about that project and how the two work in concert for you. Yeah, it's exciting. She's, uh, she's really talented. Um, she's got a great, great work ethic, um, a great leader already that I've, I've learned and um, excited to work with her on the court. You know, in, in Division Three, we're not allowed to do a lot of, you know, or any outside of the season work with our players. So for me to, to get on the court, um, you know, in September and, and help work on their game is, is something I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Um, and yeah, we're, you know, I'm, I'm excited, um, you know, for her senior year. Um, she wants it to be the best year yet, like, like everyone does, but, um, and, and yeah, I mean, it, she definitely has the, the goals of, of playing in the WNBA. Um, she's also part of, of USA basketball and uh, three on three, which is, um, you know, goal of hers as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to help her in any way I can. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, she's, she wants this to be the best Princeton year ever. And that's what's, you know, ahead on her plate. Um, and, you know, these are her best friends in the, in the world. So she wants to have this, you know, special ending to her senior year. And it's, you know, and if that happens and um, that's great, but I, you know, she's also going to be set up 
um, and and be ready for that, you know, that that freshman rookie, you know, WNBA um, season. And yeah, I want to help her get better, um, and and she will, and um, and she'll be ready for that that next level, whether you know it's it's WNBA or or USA basketball, and um, because she has she has that great foundation. Um, mm-hmm. of, of just a tremendous work ethic and passion and love for the, for the game. It, it's fascinating. I'm very eager to see uh, what the two of you are able to accomplish in this upcoming year. But before I let you go, I've just, if I could take you back to more of a macro sense of it, and, and you've now seen the growth and development of women's basketball now over the past few decades. And I'm wondering what you think has changed the level of competition compared to even when you played and what you think is the biggest, most interesting evolution of style that we've seen in the game uh, since you were an undergraduate at UConn. Oh yeah. Well, just the level of play, the level of the athletes. Um, it's, it's another, <laughs> you know, another level, right? It, these, these, these young women are, um, you know, the things that they're capable of, of doing, um, just, you didn't see that, you know, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they're starting, you know, they're starting earlier, right. Um, AU and again, club basketball is starting much earlier. Um, skill work is, is starting much earlier. So they're m- much, much more skilled. Um, you know, sometimes you don't see as, as the, the fundamentals as, as strong as they were in the past, the, the passing game, Maybe, but um, you know, I, I, that goes with with coaching. What coaches really um, emphasize the the fundamentals, um, but just the level of of athlete and the the skill work, what they're able to do with the with the basketball, um, and and you know, you know, they're they're finishing right at the rim and you know, just stronger. And I think you know they're you know, working in the, the weight room on a more explosive stuff than, than we did in the past as well. So everything, you know, evolutionized and, um, it's, it's amazing to see, uh, you know, watching, watching college basketball now compared to 25 years ago. Um, it's, it's amazing. Um, because there's just so many young women that play at a, at a high level. Um, and you see that, you know, UConn isn't just the best basketball. They don't have all the just best basketball players in the country, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. all over the country now. They're at Baylor, they're at Stanford, they're at Notre Dame, they're at, you know, South Carolina and Louisville. And, and it's, you know, much more parity because of, you know, just how many more, you know, girls and, and young women are playing the game and playing at a, at a really high level. Um, and then you, and then it, and it goes right into the, into the WNBA. You know, there's so many women that don't make those WNBA rosters that, you know, would love to, to be able to watch, you know, I wish they could expand it, um, to yes. get more teams. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, to allow more women to pursue that opportunity here professionally. Right. That that's, it absolutely should happen. I, I will say you probably gave our listeners some flashbacks by mentioning some of the other colleges that have uh, beaten UConn in recent years, but that is the <laughs> larger point stands for sure. Uh, well, Carla, that, this was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time. And, and of course. thanks for being part of the, of, of the podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll look for 
any excuse to uh, cover you here at stores. And I also, I, I run things over at High Post Hoops. So we have a dedicated Ivy League reporter coming up this year. We'll be uh, highlighting everything you do uh, there as well. So I'm looking forward Great. to it. Great. Looking forward to it too. Thanks, Howard. That's going to do it for us this week. For Dan Conway, this is Amon Kidwai. Thank you all for listening. I walk a lonely road, the only one that I have ever known. <laughs>